If you have your Bibles, open with me to Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 4. And again, drawing on our Hebrew vocabulary, we're going to read what is technically called a chunk of Scripture. All right, so Hebrews 2, starting at verse 4, we'll read through the chapter. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The Delium and the Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things from your law. 
Enable us to see your goodness and grace as it was displayed from the earliest times of human history in the garden and the work that you did for Adam, to Adam, and with Adam. May we see that the history of mankind that begins in the opening pages of Genesis is a history that bears effect on our lives now to this very present day. Thank you that in the midst of um, a broken world, we know that the creation that was once good and perfect will one day be remade and renewed in that perfection, and that the perfect man, the perfect king, Jesus Christ himself, will govern and rule over all. And it's in his name and because of his name that we pray. Amen. So Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 have a lot of similarities but they also have some differences, some things that make them distinct. Uh, Without going into details, the way that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 function is something like this. I don't think, as some people would argue, that what you have in Genesis 1 is one creation account, and then in Genesis 2, another creation account, and they were just sort of floating around out there somewhere and then were grabbed hold of and put in and well, which creation account is best? Well, I don't know. Well, let's just keep both of them, and so they throw them both in. Rather, I think that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the more that you read and the more you familiarize yourself with the text, it becomes obvious that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are meant to fit together in a complementary way. Genesis 1 is more of the broad overview of God's work in creation, sort of the the view from 30,000 feet. You're, you're getting the lay of the land, so to speak. You're seeing in general broad details the fact that God brought all of this into existence, that He created, that He formed, that He ordered, that He filled. And every aspect of the physical universe is represented in some way in Genesis 1. Genesis 2 complements Genesis 1 because after you run through the seven days of the creation week culminating in God's rest. There is nothing more that needs to be done, nothing more that needs to be added. Genesis 2, 4 and following comes back to the creation work that God does, but it comes down closer sort of at ground level to say, now let's look in a little bit more detail as, at what God did when He actually created man and woman. So, Genesis 1, broad overview, summary of everything that God did. Genesis 2, more detailed and more specific, but the two accounts fit together. Okay? We're going to take two weeks, this Sunday and next, in Genesis 2, 4 through 25. There are two main things that God does here with Adam, and we're going to look at one today and one next week. One thing that, do, that God does for Adam in Genesis 2 is He gives him work. Yay! <laughs> he gives him work. The second thing that God gives to Adam in Genesis 2 is a wife. You see how that plays out? The two W's, work and wife? Brilliant, right? Okay? Get ready. It gets even better when I get to the outline for today's message. All right? Not just two W's, we have three P's today. Just hold on. I know. Hold on. Hold on. Okay? 
So, work and wife. Today we're going to look at God giving work to Adam. What it is that God is doing when he gives work, gives Adam a vocation. And most significantly, we want to say, not just look at this as a history lesson to say, well, isn't that interesting what God did back then, but to tie in, just like we've seen in Genesis 1 earlier, but also now in Genesis 2, that what God is doing in the opening pages of Genesis is He's laying the foundation for the way that His creation will work or will function the way that He has designed it and the way that He intends it to to happen, to to be fulfilled, which is sort of a, a long, stumbling way to say what God does for Adam here in Genesis 2 in giving him work means something for us when we look at the fact that just like Adam in the beginning, we also find work that has been given to us that we have to do, and we want to say, why did God do that? Why do we have work? Why is work so hard? So, here are the three Ps. You ready? Mark this day down because this will probably be one, maybe once a year, twice, three times a year maybe at the most that I'll ever have. What is this called? Alliteration? Okay, alliteration. Ken loves alliteration, right? Pastor Hal loves alliteration. I can't do alliteration, but I did today. So here it is, the three Ps today. One, work comes from a personal God. Or if you wanted to say that work is tied into a personal relationship. I, I want to stress the personalness, if that's a word, of God when He gives Adam work. And of course, we'll see this also at play next week when we see God giving Adam a wife. So, work is from a personal God. Number two, work is a privilege. Work is a privilege, and you might want to put in parentheses there, not a curse. Work is a privilege. And then number three, work is priestly. This one doesn't, doesn't fit quite as nicely, but I had two Ps and I needed a third one. Basically, work is spiritual in nature. Well, how can I do it? Well, priestly right? Serving the Lord. So, work comes from a personal God. Work is a privilege, not a curse. And work is priestly. It is something that we do that has spiritual connections to it, no matter what it is that we're doing. And we're going to touch on these things briefly. So, number one, work comes from a personal God. One of the things that's important to notice, and it's one of the ways that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are distinct, is that God is spoken of differently starting in 2-4 than He has been in 1-1 through 2-3. So, for example, if you turn over to 1-1, in the beginning, who created the heavens and the earth? God, right? Good. I heard a a young voice, very good. God created the heavens and the earth. And then as you continue to go through chapter 1, 
everything that's done, whether it's creating light, whether it's separating water from land, whether it's creating plants or animals, God said, God saw that it was good. Then God said, it's always God, all the way through chapter 1 down to chapter 2, 3. In 2, 4, there is a marked change in the way that God is addressed or in the way that God is referred to. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now, why, if in Genesis 1, it's been sufficient to say God created the heavens and the earth, God said, God saw, God did all this, why now? And if you go through 2-4 all the way to the end of the chapter, every time God is mentioned in a proper way, it's always the Lord God. So verse 5, the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth. Verse 7, the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground. Verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east. You, you get the pattern? Why is He called God in Genesis 1? Why is He called Lord God in Genesis 2, 4? And I think the, the reason is because there are two, in a general sort of way, two features or two perspectives on God that are communicated by the names that are used. In Genesis 1, when, when God is referred to simply as God, that's the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim, from its beginning, was almost more of a generic term for a deity. So not just Israel, but even the other ancient Near Eastern peoples, they would refer to gods as El. That, that was their name for God. And then the question became well, what is this El or this Elohim like, right? Okay, there is a God, this supreme being out there. Then the task becomes trying to figure out and understand what He's like. So, when God is referred to as Elohim, as a general rule, most of the time God is being depicted in His transcendence, the fact that He is outside of and over and beyond everything and everyone that exists. And that's very fitting and very proper for the creation account in Genesis 1 because the author wants us to understand that when God creates, God is not competing with creation as if creation is out of control and He's having to wrestle with it. There is God and there is no one and nothing else. He is supreme and transcendent. Anything that exists, exists because He brought it in. God brought creation into existence, but He is not to be identified with His creation. He is totally separate and distinct. He is God. Genesis 2.4 tacks on the title Lord to Lord God. And if you notice in your Bibles, the word Lord is in all caps. So in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord in all caps, that's an indication that the word, the name that's being used there is the name Yahweh. So, Yahweh God, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh, of course, we find out later in Exodus, is God's personal name, if we can say it that way. So, the difference between saying man and Jonathan, 
woman and Chris, my wife. I didn't want anyone to think I was getting things confused. Lord God, God's personal name, and because of the personal name, what's also associated with that is that God, being a personal God, is a God who is near, a God who communicates, a God who does not remain distant, a God who enters into relationship with His people, a God who gives commands, a God who reveals things, right? So Genesis 2, 4 and following is saying, now this God, this supreme being that brought all of this into existence, that is so far removed from it that you cannot tie or connect creation to Him. In other words, He is totally separate from it. He is yet, 2, 4, the supreme being who is also personal and near. And here's why this is important, because it is God in His personalness, in His closeness to Adam and ultimately to Eve. It is God as a personal God who is stepping in to these events to give Adam work. So this is not a picture then of a God who is distant and remote and who just likes to go on a power kick every now and then and say, you know what? Six days I've been busy working and creating. Time for that lug to do something. I know what I'll do. I'll give him some work. That'll keep him busy. And so he just makes this pronouncement from on high. Adam, you're going to work. That's not what's going on here. Although God is separate and supreme, God is also one who condescends and who stoops down to communicate and fellowship with man and woman, even down to the basic activities and functions of life, which in Genesis 2 includes work itself. So here's what you need to know first and foremost when we talk about the fact that work comes from a personal God. Work is not given to Adam and Eve, or you, or me, because God just doesn't want to see us sitting around doing nothing. He wants to give us some busy work. That is not what work is for. Work, because it is given to us by a personal God entering into relationship with Adam, work then must be seen with a relational connection to it. God is relating to Adam personally, and one of the ways that He does that is by giving Adam work. Work for Adam and Eve, work for you and for me, is a way that God relates to us. It is not something that separates us from God. It is God as a personal creator who cares about the days and times and seasons and moments of our life who stoops in, who steps into His created world and gives personally to Adam a job to do. Amen. 
Number two, work is a privilege. Because work, in, well, in part, because work is not just thrown at Adam from a distance, work is not just given to humanity by a distant God who doesn't care and just wants to make sure that we're too busy to get into trouble. Because this work has a relational connection to God, that means that there is a privilege that comes with relational work. In other words, the fact that He gives me and you a job to do, that He gives us work in His creation, simply because that work ties us to God means that work is a privileged gift that He has given to us because He could have created, set this world in motion, and made it totally self-sustaining and self-managed, given us nothing to do, and would have kept us at a distance just as these little automatons moving around on the face of the earth. But He doesn't do that. He gives to us the gift of work. Look, for example, in the opening verses. Verse 5. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. That last part there, we're told one of the reasons that you don't have more vegetation is because you don't have man to produce it, to cultivate it, to work it. So lay this next to what we've already seen and heard from Genesis 1. A good and wise creator makes this world good, and he causes it to thrive and to be teeming with life. And yet, there is something that God does that rather than doing everything that could be possibly imagined, he actually says, but you know what? There's a part of this creation work that I'm actually going to set aside. I'm going to save it as a gift, as a privilege to give to man and woman. So what does God do? God in Genesis 1 is creating trees and plants and vegetation and fruit. What does He give Adam to do in verse 5, apparently? He gives Adam the job of continuing a work that God has already started, which is to see to it that plants continue to grow and thrive and produce. God does not give Adam work because God needs Adam's work. You, you get that, right? God could have just as easily seen to it that there was nothing for Adam to do. Instead, He gives him something to do. And the something that He has to do is one of the ways that Adam is distinguished from the rest of the creation because only Adam and only Eve, only man and woman, only people can say in the same way that God 
quote-unquote, works, we work too. In the same way that God creates and shapes and designs and fills and forms, guess what? We do that too. That makes us different than every other part of creation. But the privilege is that because this is a work that God gives to us, not because He needs us, but because He is inviting us to take part in a work that He's already done, there is in Genesis 2 a very real sense in which man and woman can work and simultaneously rest at the same time. Because at this point in the creation, everything that is needed for work, everything that is needed in order for creation to thrive and be successful is already built in to the creation order. So God calls Adam to work And he blesses Adam, not just with the ability to work, but with the guarantee that his work will be fruitful and meaningful in the creation. God does not give his people meaningless work. Your work is not meaningless. I don't care what that work is. If your work involves banging on a keyboard, sitting in meetings, wrestling with kids, getting dirty on the underside of a car, digging ditches, making food, whatever it is that you do, your work is not meaningless because... God could have easily said, eh, don't worry about that. I'll see to it that everything is just self-sustaining and fixes itself. Rather, he says, why don't you now step in and continue to do the things that I had already begun? Why don't you do this with me? So, ordinarily, when God works, he does not work through miraculous means. We, we would like that oftentimes, but you understand the reason that God does not do miraculous things more often is not because He doesn't love us, but precisely because He loves us. Because if He just by miracle, by fiat, did everything that needed to be done, what would there be for us to do? Instead, He says, well, yeah, I could do that for you, but what I would rather is I would rather you come with me and do this work together. Let me give you something important to do in this creation that serves this created world and serves your neighbor, and let me work through you to accomplish what I could easily do by myself, but what I would rather share and enjoy with you. And because ultimately this is God's work that He is giving to us as a privilege to share in, we then can rest no matter what work we've been called to do, knowing that because ultimately this is God's work that He is sharing with us, our work does not depend on my wisdom, on my strength, and on my success. 
I get to step into these different vocations of life, husband, father, friend, son, pastor, mechanic, homemaker, baker, computer programmer. I get to step into these vocations and know that to the extent that I am bringing a good result, that I'm doing something to help order the world around me and doing something that is going to serve in a positive way the people around me, that is a work that God has given me to do that He is going to guarantee. He will see to it that good comes from it. So, Martin Luther, great quote here. He reads from Psalm 127, which starts off, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. You know that that psalm? Most of the time when I hear that psalm, I, I hear it in an ominous sort of way. Do you? Like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to build, I'm going to work, but oh man, I hope God is in this. Rather than that psalm calling prideful people back to the reminder that all of our successful work is successful because God is involved in our work. So, this house will be built because God is building the house through me. This family will be built because God is building a family through me, so on and so forth. So, Luther reads Psalm 127, and he says this by way of encouragement to people of all stations of life. He says, work and let God give the fruits thereof. Rule and let Him prosper it. Battle and let Him give victory. Preach and let Him make hearts devout. Marry and let Him give you children. Eat and drink and let Him give you health and strength. Then it will follow that whatever we do, He will affect everything through us, and to Him alone shall be the glory. When God gives us something to do, wait, let me, let me step back. Some of you are probably asking, what is it that God has given me to do? All right, here's a simple answer. All you need to do is look around and say, what is my station in life, and what are my responsibilities? That's your vocation. That's what God has given you to do. So, are you a husband? If you can nod your head yes, that's part of your vocation. You are called to do the work of a husband. Are you a wife? That is your vocation. You have been called to do the work of a wife. Are you a parent? That is your vocation. You have been called. God has given you children as a gift so that you can be busy taking part in the work that God is doing with those kids. Do you have responsibilities in an office setting? That is your vocation. That is what God calls you to do. There are not spiritual jobs and then jobs. There is no part of this creation, as one man said, that God does not look at it and say, that's mine. 
Everything that you do, every area and sphere of your life is ultimately tied to the will and the work of God so that everything that you do in every moment of the day is inseparably bound to the very work and will of God himself. Your work in the home, outside of the home, here in the sanctuary on Sunday morning, your work is meaningful because God has given it to you. Work comes from a personal God. Work is a privilege. It is an opportunity to work with God, to relate to Him, to see that through our labor, God is bringing about His intended plans and purposes and results. That is a privilege to share. And then finally, number three, work is priestly. It sort of ties into that, one of those last statements that we just made, that there is no such thing as spiritual work and work. It's all spiritual. Skip down in Genesis 2, look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to do what? to cultivate it, or some of your versions may have, to work it and to keep it. Depending on what version you're reading out of, it could say to work it and to guard it, to cultivate it and keep it. God puts Adam in the garden and he gives him the job of taking care of the garden. Does that sound super spiritual? Gardening? Probably depends on who you're asking, right? Some of you say... I am never closer to God than when I've got my hands in the dirt. And others of you would say, I'm never closer to the curse than when I have my hands in the dirt. (laughs) All right, set that aside for a minute. The curse comes in Genesis 3. We'll get there. For now, when God puts Adam in the garden and gives him the job of cultivating it and keeping it, that sounds very basic, unimpressive, and mundane He's going to be a gardener. What's interesting is that the two verbs that you have there in verse 15, cultivate and keep, or to work it and to guard it, those two verbs are used later in the Old Testament. In Numbers chapter 3, those same verbs are used to describe the kind of work and responsibilities that the priests will have in taking care of the tabernacle, in serving in the temple that God has created so that he can dwell with his people. In other words, what you can't see right now, but you see as you begin to to tie it in with other passages of Scripture, is that this job that God has given Adam to do, even though at a distance it may seem like, well, all he's doing is landscaping. All he's doing is gardening. Because God has given it to him, because it's in the garden, because it is serving the purposes of God, that work is used with language that will later be used for the priests of God who move in and out of God's presence on a regular basis doing the work of God. This is one of the ways that the author of Genesis wants us to see that what Adam is doing here, Adam is actually serving as the very first priest. 
His work is spiritual because it is tied to a spiritual creator and a spiritual Lord who has given him this specific task. Turn to Ephesians 2 for a moment. Ephesians 2, Uh, let's see, skip down to verse 8, yeah, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Verse 10, for we are His work, or we we are His workmanship, we are His work product. God worked and produced us, spiritually speaking. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, let me ask you a question. In Ephesians 2.10, when we're told that God saves us and has recreated us for good works, what good works has He created us for? No one wants to answer? All right, go from here to Titus chapter 2. Titus 2, starting at verse 3, here's Paul telling Titus, tell the older women in the church to teach and train and encourage the younger women. Notice what it is that the younger women are to be hearing and learning. Skip down with me to verse 4, Titus 2, 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home. Now, just because the word is there, I'm going to key in on that, okay? Ephesians 2.10 says that everyone that God has created in salvation through Christ has been created for good works which He ordained before the foundation of the world. And we ask, well, what good works did He ordain for me? In Titus 2, What are those good works apparently connected to? Teaching a Sunday school class? Preaching a sermon? Fasting for 40 days and 40 nights? What are the good works in Titus 2? It it looks like, I'm just going to go out on a limb, women, wives, mothers, it looks like Well, sorry, it sounds like the good works that were prepared for you before the foundation of the world include the thing that you do every single day. And you wake up and you do the same thing every single day. Have have you stopped to think 
that one of the ways that you serve in a priestly role your creator, one of the ways that you relate to your God and your king is by working the normal, repetitive, expected tasks that are put on your plate every day. Waking up and making breakfast, that is a good work that God has ordained for you to do. And because it is, guess what? When God sees you doing that, He is pleased with that. That means something. It is not a waste of your time. Waking up when the alarm goes off and heading into the office to do Lord only knows what is not a meaningless job or task. It is something that God has given you to do to work and to serve in His creation to better the lives of those around you. And even though it may seem mundane and repetitive, this is something that God has given you that He has ordained for you from before He even created, and it is good for you to do it. Don't try to separate the activities of your life between this is what's spiritual, this is what gets me closer to God, and this is what I just have to do. This is a drudgery. This is a chore. That does not take into account that everything that exists in this creation exists because God has created it and put it here, and He has given you the opportunity to work with Him to further His purposes. Every ounce of work, every minute that you spend is meaningful to Him so long as you're doing it in faith. Here's a great example of that. A guy by the name of Gene Veith wrote a book entitled God at Work. I have it on my Kindle. I don't know how big of a book it is because, you know, you don't have pages. But if you can get your hands on it, it's very encouraging. It talks about the same sort of stuff that we're talking about here. He gives this example. A woman told me, about getting involved in a Bible study that demanded strict commitment to the study of God's Word, to which we all say, Amen. She was told, you should make the Bible your number one priority, to which we say, Amen. That meant getting up early and the very first thing in the morning doing Bible reading and having a quiet time with the Lord. Great, good. She did this. But to her consternation, every morning as she would start to read her Bible, the baby would wake up. She found herself resenting the interruption. Right? Let me, let me pause here. This is not unique to mothers with young children. Right? This is common to all of us because we cordon off our time as this is my time and this is the Lord's time. This is my work and this is the Lord's work. And if anything should interrupt that division of time, I get thrown into a tizzy. So all the time that I have for God is right now. The rest of the time is for my boss, is for my wife, is for my family, is for the job. No, it's all God's time. But nevertheless, this young mother found herself getting irritated by the fact that the baby was waking up every time she tried to get into her Bible study. She found herself resenting the interruption. Here she was trying to spend time with God, and the baby would start fussing, demanding to be fed and distracting her attention away from spiritual things. The nerve of that baby. 
After a while, though, she came to understand the doctrine of vocation, or you could say the doctrine of work. Taking care, listen, taking care of her baby was what God at that moment was calling her to do. Being a mother and loving and serving her child was her vocation, her divine calling from the Lord. She could read the Bible later. She did not have to feel guilty that she was neglecting spiritual things. Taking care of her baby is a spiritual thing. Do you see when you begin to see work this way, do you see how transformative that is? That everything that God puts on your plate, everything that He gives you to do is a spiritual thing so long as you are doing it in faith, trusting that this is His work being done through you, that He could do it without you, but that He has privileged you with the opportunity to work with Him and to see at the end of the day the fruit and the reward of your labor that He makes possible. The Lord God, a covenant-making, covenant-keeping, personal, relational God steps into His creation and as a gift, as a blessing, gives to man and woman work. By the way, one of the reasons that we know, in addition to this, that work is a good thing is because the little glimpses that we get of the perfect heaven and earth when there is no more sin, dying, or pain, do you know there is still work that will be involved even in a perfect world? Right? Jesus gives the parable in the Gospels. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge. I will give you responsibility for many things. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like work. It sounds like the work and the vocation that we have right now, in one sense, is not just meaningful for the present, but is meaningful for the future because it will have eternal ramifications for how we continue to work and continue to serve in God's kingdom without any frustrations, without any hindrances or obstacles. Work is not just something that we endure now and we get rid of once we enter through the gates of glory. Work is something that we were made for. We were made to work with God. Work is a good gift. Let's pray. Father, how foolish and short-sighted of us it is to see the task and the responsibilities that we have and to think lightly of them. How prideful and arrogant it is for us to think that we ought to be able to set our own agendas or to write our own job descriptions, to be able to tell you what is worth our time and our energy. Father, there's a lot of frustration 
that comes with work in this broken world. We know that. But we also want to know and we want to take on faith that work in and of itself is not a curse. Work is something that you gave, that you worked into the fabric of your creation from the very beginning so that you could have another platform and opportunity to tie your life into ours. And so for us going forward, I pray that when the alarm clock goes off tomorrow morning, that we would see this new day as another opportunity to get to work in the kingdom of God for your glory, for our joy. And that because we know that the work, the vocation that you've given us in any sphere, any realm, because it is your work, that we would be able to rest knowing that you call us simply to be faithful and diligent and we can leave the results and the fruit in your hands. Thank you for the privilege of being able to work alongside with you to bring about your good and perfect will. Thank you for the way that we see Jesus doing your perfect work with joy and delight for the good of those who would come after him. May we have that mindset as well by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Someone who feels like they've lost it all over the edge.